Well, I invite you this morning to open your Bibles to the very first page of them. After you get back past the preface and the explanation of the translation and the table of contents, the very first page, Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 through 3 is our assigned reading and our Bible reading plan. We're encouraging all the families the church body here, to read through the Bible together this year. We're making great efforts in doing that. The preaching is going to be all through each of these texts, whatever the assigned reading was this past week. The reading today is Genesis 1-3. through And I have a shorter text today than any other time the rest of uh, this year. We really encourage you to do that. Even resolve your heart now. So I'm going to go home. I'm going to read Genesis 1-3. through And I trust even as I preach upon it today, your heart will be enlightened and encouraged. Appropriately, the title of my message this morning is In the Beginning. It's taken right from the first three words there of your Bible right in front of you. As we begin these first three chapters, let me just simply say that of any chapters in all of the Bible, these first three chapters of Genesis rank as high as any in their importance. In fact, I believe that should our Bibles not include these first three chapters... I don't think the Bible would make any sense at all. They begin with the most fundamental fact of the universe. There's a God who created the universe. Two truths are at the head. These two truths are at the head of many of the historic Christian creeds, right? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth. There is a God who created all things. And that's what Genesis 1 and 2 speak about. And chapter 3 comes and speaks about the important narrative of the fall of man. It's not really important because it's such a good event in the history of the world. It's important because it was such a terrible event that it affected all of humanity as Adam's sin plunged all of humanity into the depths of sin. And I say that the first three chapters of the Bible are needful to understand the whole rest of the Bible Because the rest of the Bible seeks to explain how God works in history to redeem a people for Himself out of fallen humanity. In fact, should you attempt to distill the whole story of the Bible down to one simple sentence, I believe it would go something like this. The Bible tells the story of God's redemption of man through Jesus Christ. That's what it's about. It's a redeeming book. It's a book of salvation. It's a book of God's love and grace coming to His people. It tells how, the Bible tells how we've gone wayward, especially in Genesis 1 through 3, but that continues to compound. And it says how God provided Jesus Christ to reconcile us to God. And it all started with Adam. Should Genesis 1 through 3 be ripped out of the pages of our Bible? I don't think they'd make sense. Our Bible wouldn't make sense. And to miss these chapters is to miss the story of the whole Bible. So let's begin by looking at the first point here this morning, the creation. Genesis chapters 1 and 2. We read there in the beginning, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Before God created the universe, there was nothing except for God. Theologians often describe this creation of the world using the Latin phrase ex nihilo, which means ex like exit, out of, nihilo, nil, nothing. Out of nothing is how God created the universe. And in Genesis 1-2, through we have the account of how God created the world. You know, nobody was there except for God. And in His grace, God has told us of how it was that actually He created the world. And by faith, we take these words to be a straightforward description of what took place in those early days. Chapter 1 gives us a big panoramic picture of creation. At the beginning of the chapter, there's nothing. And by the end of the chapter, everything's created and God calls it very good. Chapter 2 zooms in on one part of the day of creation, particularly the creation of man, Adam and Eve. Well, I want to begin this morning by looking at chapter 1. Let me read it. Breaks down chapter 1 does in six nice sections, which each describe a single day in the creative work of God. The first day starts like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. 
and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness He called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, one day. Now, at this point, there's been all types of discussion about how long this day was. Was it a 24-hour day? Or was it a long eon of time, perhaps billions of years? And I want you to know, before we tackle that question, is you need to know why it is that people ask this question. It's not because they study their Bible and read their Bible and say, oh, one day, that must mean a long period of time. That's not how people come to that conclusion. The way people come to that conclusion is because they have some preconceived understanding about how old they think the universe is. And then when they come to the Bible... They come and they read and it says, oh, there's only six days? I thought it was four and a half billion years old that the earth was. And so there's a problem instantly created in their mind. They say something isn't right. And for some of those who do not want to believe the Bible, it's pretty easy. They say, ah, see what a fairy tale the Bible is? And they discard it immediately right from the very first page. But for others who attend church and believe the Bible, they got to mix these two things together. And so they try to massage the message of the Bible to make it fit into modern science. They can do that one of two ways. Either they can put a big gap between verses 1 and 2. It's called the gap theory. Millions and perhaps billions of years between those. Or they might synthesize these two accounts by quoting 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. That's with the Lord, a day is a thousand years. A thousand years is one day. And so, this one day of creation, well, it could be a thousand years. It, it could be a billion years. They try to stretch it out. It's called the day-age theory. Now, many of those who seek to harmonize the Bible with their scientific understanding are well-meaning people. Many of them are far more intelligent than I will ever be. Many of them have much scientific data that they can use to defend their case. But here's here's what you need to realize. You need to realize that they come to believe these things fundamentally not because they've read their Bible first and think that it teaches that. It's because of the science that they've been taught. They try to mix it and mingle it with the Bible. That's how you come up with those theories. They don't start with the Bible. They start with other things and try to synthesize it with the Bible. May I humbly say that I believe that such people are wrong. I I believe the first five verses of Genesis to take place in 24 literal hours. Now, there are lots of linguistic and semantic reasons why. There are other scientific reasons why people have been studying and putting doubt upon long ages of the time. I don't have the morning, this time this morning to get in the nitty gritty details. There's books, there's volumes, pages written that, internet stuff abound. If you're interested in that, come see me. I can direct you some resources. But let me simply say that I think it was six days. I want to give you two very non-technical reasons why I believe this. The first is that If you just read Genesis chapter 1, literal, face value, easy, simple reading, what you come up with is that God teaches that He created the world in six days. That's the only thing that you can come out of this passage. You say, okay, I'm I'm coming with with nothing in my mind. I'm just going to come to the Bible, Genesis 1. Let me read it. It's six days. In fact, God makes it painfully clear sometimes about how it was six days. Evening. There was morning. One day a second day, a third day, and even by the end, it was six days. The seventh day He rested. In Exodus chapter 20, or 21, I think it's 20, He says, God created the world in six days. He rested on the seventh. Therefore, you should work and labor six days, but rest on the seventh. Right? The parallels. God brings us to that simple reading. You know, God could easily have made these accounts much more ambiguous had He wanted to. He could have said something like this in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. From of old, the earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep for many years. The Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. When the time came for creation, God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw light was good. God separated light from the darkness. God called the light day. The darkness called night. This took place during the first time or period of creation. He could have done that. But He didn't. 
He gives us no hints here of long period of time during creation. In fact, you can easily argue that God made the timing very clear. That's my first reason. My second very non-technical reason about why I believe that the creation of the world took place in six days is because I believe in a powerful God. I read passages of Scripture that say something like this, nothing is too difficult for God. The Scripture often describes God as one who sits in the heavens doing whatever He pleases. And of all I know that Scripture speaks about God, to conceive of Him creating a world in six days, six literal 24 hours days, is not too difficult for me to believe at all. In fact, one of my favorite cartoon strips of all times, I put it there on the children's note. If you have it, you can kind of look at it there. Parents, you can lean over. There's a little boy and a little girl talking about the time of creation. And the boy says, six days? And the girl says, yep. And the boy says again, six truly, really days? And the girl says what, kids? Yep. yep. With a frown on his face, he says, you're sure it was six days? And patiently the girl replies, yes. Finally the boy responds, I wonder why he took so long. See, when you believe a powerful God, He could have created the world in an instant. He chose to take it in six days. I've heard one preacher say that for the majority of those days, God probably had His feet up in creating the world. Genesis 1 teaches that God created the world in six days. On the first day, He created the heavens, the earth, the light, and the night, verses 1 through 5. And the second day, He creates the expanse. Verses 6 through 8. And the third day, He created the dry land and plants. The fourth day, He created the sun, moon, and stars. And the fifth day, He created fish and the birds. On the sixth day, He created the land animals and created man. And I just want to make one, one comment here, kind of in passing. As you think about this um, arrangement of how God created the world, I've heard several people say to me before, isn't it amazing about how the creation account you know, is so consistent with evolution. I mean, I mean, look, there was the animals that were created. First, they were created in the sea, and then they evolved and migrated to the sky, and, and then to the land, and then finally it ends with man. Isn't that wonderful how evolution just coordinates the plan of the Bible? That's exactly what God communicated. And I would say that those who say that miss some very difficult problems. They try to make all these things be long eons of time and they miss that in day three God created the plants. And they would have the plants existing for millions, perhaps billions of years without the sun, which wasn't created until the next eon. Now, that's not particularly such a big problem. God could have provided light to provide for all those plants. But to the one who's trying to explain the origin and creation of the universe by naturalistic explanations like evolution tries to do, it just all falls apart and doesn't work. And I believe that all the discussion today surrounding evolution is an attempt to get people out from under the authority of God as Creator. I mean, when we think of God as Creator, we need to realize that He's the potter and we are the clay. And the thing molded has no right to question the Creator. The thing molded can't say to its Maker, why have you done this? Why did you do it this way? We can't resist His will. In fact, Isaiah 45 verse 9 says, Woe to the one who quarrels with his Maker. And those who believe in evolution are quarreling with their Maker. And it will be woe to them. Romans 1 makes it clear that such people know God through the testimony of creation. We sang it today, Isaac Watts. There's not a plant or flower below, but makes thy glories known. We read it in Psalm 19. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. Romans 1 says that these people, everybody in the world knows God through the testimony of creation, yet they suppress the truth to believe the lie of evolution. In doing so, they think they escape from the authority of God. They escape the authority, from the authority of God in their minds, though they don't really. Listen, God has created us 
And we as His creatures, as His clay, are called to bend the knee and submit ourselves completely to Him as His servants. Psalm 123 says, Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their masters, so our eyes will look to the Lord our God until He be gracious to us. You can just picture a servant there sitting, watching the hand of the master come. Ooh, can you come get something? And instantly, Johnny on the spot, there's where the servant is. And that's what we need to do with God. We need to look to Him until He be gracious to us. Well, of all the days of creation, the climax takes place on the sixth day when He creates man. More time and space is devoted here to the sixth day than any other day. We read in verse 26, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Who's God talking to in this verse? He says, let us make man. Is He talking to the animals? Is He talking to the angels? (laughs) It can't be those. Because neither the angels nor animals can create. He said, let us create. Let us be involved in the creation process. He's talking to the other persons of the Godhead. We've seen the Spirit in verse 2 already. The Spirit of God moving over the surface of the deep. As the Bible continues on, we find that there are three persons in the Godhead. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And in Colossians chapter 1 and John chapter 1, we see that Jesus was very instrumental in the creation process. And so when you think about the Creator God, don't think of the God of the Muslims, a single God. Think of a triune God creating the world. Right here in Genesis chapter 1, it tells us that. Also think about the uniqueness of man. We all are made in the image of God. We read in verse 27, that God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. From the very beginning of creation, there's always been a distinction between men and animals because we're made in the image of God and the animals were not. It allows us to have dominion over them. Look at verse 26. Being an image bearer, they have opportunity to rule. Different things. We are different than the animals. We can communicate much better than the animals can like like God. This word image oftentimes is used of of icons and idols. You know, maybe there is some physical representation of us with God. It's not true of animals. And theologians have tried to figure out what does this image of God mean? And I think you combine all those things. Maybe there's some physical aspect Certainly, there's some relational aspect we can communicate with others. Certainly, there's some dominion aspect that we can have dominion like God has dominion. In that sense, we're made in His image. But one of the reasons why this is important is because God redeems man. God redeems His image bearer. He doesn't redeem angels. Angels are in heaven because they're perfect He doesn't redeem animals because animals aren't created in the image of God. He redeems image bearers. And right here from the start, man is put forth as the king of the earth, the one who's in the image of God, the one whom God then will come and redeem. By the end of the creation account, we see in verse 31 that it was all done. It was very good. That's what he said. Six times before he'd said that it was good. But now when everything was completed, he said it was very good. So good, in fact, chapter 2, verse 2, that he rested from all that he had done. He made the seventh day a special day. We read in chapter 2, verse 3, that he sanctified the day and thus God established the week. Six days of work, a day of rest. I mean, there's no other explanation for coming up with a seven-day week than creation. And almost every society has always had a seven-day week. We can explain the day, right? A light and darkness, evening and morning. The earth turns around one time. We can explain the month, right? The the moon goes around the earth one time every month. We can explain the year, the earth going around the sun. Once a year, the seasons come, but there's no explanation for a seven-day week at all except that God created it after the model of how He created creation. 
Well, in chapter 2 here, we get a closer look at the creation of man. We read in verse 7 that he is indeed clay. It says right there that the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. My father, being a physician, likes to say this was the first instance of CPR. Breathing into life the breath, and man became a living being. We read of God's care for him in verses 8 and 9. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there He placed the man whom He had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that's pleasing to the sight and good for food. It was picture perfect. It tasted fine. It was like the the grandest buffet you've ever had. You know, cakes sometimes, you don't want to cut into them because you ruined them. That's what it was. Everything was pleasing to sight. It was good for food. And the tree of life, now catch this, the tree of life, that's weaves throughout the Bible. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God set him in this place, a wonderful place, a perfect place, a very good place. And then God gave Adam the responsibility of caring for the garden. Then the Lord, verse 15, took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. You know, our first ancestor was a farmer. He was. He cared for the garden that God had made for him. His farming was a lot easier than farmers today. His caring and cultivating and serving it and tilling it was much easier. But there was some grooming that he did. Because this garden was unlike any that we have ever experienced. No weeds in the garden. All the fruit was good. I uh, made a, a fruit salad for, um, for this men's cook afterwards, this men's cook breakfast. And Yvonne went out and bought me a watermelon. Expensive watermelon. About that size of watermelon. What would you pay? Like two fifty for it? I think, hey, this would be good. And I opened it up and it, it was bad. In the Garden of Eden, there was no rancid fruit. The fruit was all good and all ready to be eaten. The fruit was abundant. In fact, look at verse 16, what God says. He says, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. God was so good to provide Adam not only with everything that he needed, but an abundance of everything. You just eat freely to your heart's content. Now, I love fruit. I would have loved to live in the garden. Just take this and take that and take that and eat it and enjoy it. And God was so good to provide Adam with such good food to eat. He was so good when He needed a helper to provide for Adam a needed wife. God gave him everything that's good. This was paradise. This was utopia. This was perfection. This was nirvana. This was it. God was so good. God merely imposed one restriction upon the man. comes in verse 17. From the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. From the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And this prohibition led to the tragic consequences of chapter 3, which I'm entitling The Fall. Genesis 3, verses 1 through 7. And I think of all the verses in the Bible, perhaps these are the most tragic of all. It describes how Adam and Eve fell from a state of perfection and pleasure to a state of sin and despair. It begins with a crafty serpent who is more crafty than any beast of the field. Revelation 12.9 tells us who this beast was. It was none other than Satan himself. And the serpent began to instill doubt in the mind of Eve as to the character and intentions of God. He said in verse 1, Indeed, Has God said, you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? (laughs) The serpent couldn't have gotten it any more wrong than he did. There was only one tree that God had prohibited Adam and Eve to eat from. Just one. Other than that, God never prohibited eating from any tree. You can eat abundantly, freely is what it says. You may freely eat. But even worse than missing things, Satan puts an emphasis here upon how God is entirely wrong. How God has got bad motives. The the kindness of God is being twisted all around here. God had told him to eat freely 
with the exception of the one. And the serpent says, oh, taking this one point of exception, you shall not eat from any tree. Though God, in His abundance, provided all this and made one exception. You know where Satan's focusing, don't you? Right there on the exception. That's where he's focusing. And that's so like sin. Though one abound in kind intentions. Suppose one has been very kind and loving and gracious to you for years. And then there's one minuscule perceived evil intent. How easy is that to cloud our entire thinking about someone else? No longer do you think of the kindness and goodwill and patience that you've seen from this person in abundance. Rather, you think of the one point of contention. And Satan is such that he likes to exploit that one point of contention and just grow it and use this a wedge to get it bigger and bigger and bigger. That's what God, Satan did here with Eve. He attempted right, to use it to get Eve to think of God in a negative light. In other words, let me paraphrase. God doesn't have your best in mind. He's out for His own good. He's not out for your good. Right? That's what verses 2 and 3 expose. Right? But in verse 2 and 3, the woman responds appropriately, attempting to set the record straight. She says, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. So we may eat. She dropped freely. But that's Okay. But for the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. She added a little bit more. And in the thrust of things, I think she got things pretty right. She didn't hear it straight from God. Maybe that was what Adam added. Maybe it's what Adam forgot. We don't exactly know for sure. She did add a little bit to what God said and did subtract away from it. But she got the point. But I think subtly, though, in her response of adding and subtracting these things, that there is a subtle deficiency in Eve's response of showing God's abundant goodness to her and Adam. Her, her response perhaps even seems to indicate and to say, you know what, I, I do see this in God, perhaps. He's saying, we can't even touch this tree. God says simply, do not eat. I believe these subtle differences in her response was precisely the crack that Satan needed to wedge the door of doubt wide open and deceive Eve away from the simplicity and purity of devotion to God. Satan, the father of lies, speaks forth the lie that deceived Eve to eat first of the fruit. He said, beginning in verse 4, You surely will not die, for God knows that in that day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And this flaming arrow finds its way into the heart of Eve, who for the first time begins to doubt the goodness of God in His commands. Right? She let the temptation flow from her mind then to her flesh as she looked upon the food. And I'm telling you how temptation works. If you don't battle temptation in the mind, but try to battle the flesh, you'll lose every time. Because once temptation gets out of your mind into your flesh, it's over. Battle the temptation in your mind. And that's where Eve battled and lost. Look at verse 6 describes, it gets to the flesh. She starts looking at this fruit and starts thinking about it and starts contemplating it. When the woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Now, I cannot even begin to explain to you all the results of this sinful act. It opened the eyes of Adam and Eve to the evil they'd done. Suddenly, for the first time, they, they felt shame in their naked bodies. This intimate relationship with each other and with God was changed forever. Rather than loving Him, they were afraid of Him. As we find later when He's walking in the garden, they hid from Him. In a little bit, we'll see the curse of God that comes to result which results as pain and labor and hardship. Soon they'll be banished from the garden, never to return again. And they'll never be able to eat from the tree of life. Thus, they would die, as Genesis 5.5 records. But I'm telling you, the, the results of the sinful act upon Adam and Eve, I mean, everything that happened to Adam and Eve, pales in insignificance 
when compared with the results upon the rest of mankind. This sinful act took all of future humanity from a state of sinlessness to a state of sinfulness. It took all of humanity from a state of, of blessing to a state of condemnation, from a, a state of friendship with God to a state of hostility against God, from the love of God to the wrath of God. And this one act had implications for billions and billions and billions and billions of people. In Romans 5, verse 18, Paul says it this way, through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men. Adam's transgression. Condemnation to all men. Billions and billions and billions of people. In Romans 5.19, the next verse, he says it like this. Through one's man, through one's man, through one man's trans... Ah, let's try this again. Through one's man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Made to be sinners. You were made to be a sinner because of what Adam did in the garden. I was made to be a sinner because of what Adam did in the garden. And that's why the first three chapters of Genesis are so important for us to understand, even thousands of years after the fact, because they affect us all. We are sinful people under the wrath and curse of God because of Adam's sin in the garden. Paul calls us, Ephesians 2.1, children of wrath. At this point, you might easily say, hey, wait a minute, Steve, that's not fair. I mean, how can I be condemned because of what somebody else did? It was Adam's fault. He should pay the consequence, not me. If that's the way you think, I just tell you, be careful. Because if you want to continue your logic, you need also to believe that you cannot be justified because of what somebody else did for you. Because it goes both ways. We're condemned by Adam's sin, though we didn't do anything to deserve it. Likewise, by faith, we are justified by Christ's act of righteousness, though we didn't do anything to deserve it either. And it goes both ways. In fact, listen to those verses I read for you in Romans 5. I only read one portion of the verse. There's a parallel statement which follows. Romans 5.18 As through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted in justification of life to all men. The one act brought condemnation. The other act brought justification. Right? Romans 5.19 As through one, man, one man's disobedience the many were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. There is a parallel there. There were two men who did two acts, had two consequences. One man sinned, resulted in condemnation. The other man was righteous and resulted in justification. Here's the point. In Adam, we're condemned. In Jesus, we're justified. In Adam, we were made sinners. In Jesus, we were made righteousness. We're made righteous. And listen, right here is where evolution is so damning. Because Paul argues upon two historical people. Sin entered the world through one man. And sin is solved by one man. But if you believe that we evolved from monkeys and apes, we evolved kind of collectively whole together. And, and how did sin enter the world then? Through many humans evolving at the same time. How then would the parallel in Romans 5 work? You need to be justified through many men. But listen, that's why it's important to have one Adam who brought sin and condemnation into the world because the second Adam, Jesus Christ, brings righteousness into the world. That's how sin is removed. Well, at this point, another question might come to your mind. Steve, why are you talking so much about Adam? I thought Eve was the one who sinned first. I mean, she ate. And only after eating did she give the fruit to Adam, who then ate. Why, did, why doesn't Eve get the blame? It's a good question. Let me ask you another question. When Eve ate of the fruit, where was Adam? Where was Adam? Did she take from the fruit and eat and say, Oh, man, 
I need to go find Adam. And after chasing him down in the garden, you know, he was tilling and working the, the garden over there. I said, here, try this. Where did it come from? Well, I don't know. Here, just try it. I don't know. Just eat it. She didn't have to do that. It was totally different. Look carefully at verse 6, what it says. She took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. I believe that Adam was standing right beside his wife during the entire encounter with the serpent. And you know what? His mouth stayed shut. And he passively watched this whole conversation take place and passively watched Eve eat of the fruit. At this point, Adam should have become the world's first preacher. He should have preached to Eve, Eve! Bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Remember what our Lord, our Master has told us. He told us not to eat from this tree. He told us that we would die in the day that we ate of this tree. Eve, have you any reason to doubt God's words? He's been so good to us, hasn't He? I mean, look at the beauty of the garden that God has made for us. The leaves are green. The fruit is good. Look over here. Look look at the rivers. They flow out of the garden. They're pure and they're they're clean and and they taste so good. Look around and see all the trees. Look at the fruit. Taste the fruit, Eve. The fruit tastes wonderfully. Wonderful. Eve, God's given us everything. He's given us each other. When no animal was found to help me, He made you. And you are the perfect helper corresponding to me. You're perfect for me. I'm perfect for you. God has never, ever failed to provide for us. Eve, listen, everything He's told us has been true. He's never lied. And there's no reason to doubt His words now, is there? He told us not to eat of this fruit. Surely God has our good in mind, doesn't He? When He told us not to eat of this fruit, isn't it for our good? We need to trust Him. Eve, Eve, don't eat of the fruit! That should have been the first sermon that was ever preached, and it wasn't. Sadly, Eve ate. Perhaps if Adam didn't have the time to preach that sermon, he should have grabbed her hand and said, Eve, don't eat. Should have taken the fruit, set it down or thrown it away and said, Eve, we don't eat from this tree. Remember what I told you? But alas, Adam didn't do any of these things. He sat by and watched it all take place and like many passive men do today. Sit and watch and let things happen in their home that they ought not to let happen. Man, I simply say this. Take responsibility in your home and steer it towards righteousness. Just like Adam was the head of his marriage, so you are the head of your marriage. Say with Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Preach to your house the wonders of the goodness of God. Tell your wife and children the commands of God are given to us for good. Tell your wife and children the prohibitions of God are to protect us from hurting ourselves. And when need be, step in and be the Adam that Adam never was. It's your responsibility, men. Sadly, Adam and Eve sinned. Adam bears the responsibility. Plunged the world into despair. It's where we see now our third point. We've seen the creation, seen the fall. Now we turn to the curse. It didn't take God much time at all to figure out what happened. Soon after Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, the Lord God came walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Verse 8 says, just like I suppose He'd done many times before. And Adam and Eve, this is, this is amazing here, they, they attempt to hide from God. What a feeble exercise. You can't hide from God. You ever seen a child play peekaboo? Little baby with a blanket. Got a blanket there like that. And, and mom's looking up at this little boy. And, and this little boy's like this. And boy covers his, it closes his eyes and covers his head. And what does mom say? Where are you? Where'd you go? The baby's thinking like, ah, I here I am. Oh, peekaboo. And the, the, the child's perspective is like, I can hide from, God, from mom. I just shut my eyes and cover my head. And um, mom says, where'd you go? Where'd he go? Where'd he go? It was just like that in the garden. It was just like that in the garden. And God's walking along saying, Adam, where are you? 
He knew where he was. Because the Bible says in Proverbs 15, verse 3, that the eyes of the Lord are in every place watching the evil and the good. He saw the evil that was done. He knows the good that's done. God knew where they were and by their behavior, God knew what they had done. In verse 11, he begins to get to the issue. He says this, Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And rather than taking responsibility for the sin, you know what they do? They make excuses. The man blamed the woman. The woman blamed the serpent. Just as many do today. You know, I've seen this in my house with my children before. In fact, even yesterday we had an event where something going on the children told several times didn't get done. When I came into the house, my wife told me what happened. I confronted the situation and one child responded this way. said, Dad, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And after discipline was over, complete restoration is wonderful. Another child who said, Dad, I thought that I'd done what you said. I didn't know exactly what needed to be done. I, I, I did what I thought needed to be done. And you know, when discipline was applied, still sorrow there. Because that's the principle of it. You make an excuse, you're not repentant. But God loves to look down upon a contrite heart, a contrite spirit. God loves and He looks at those who admit their guilt by saying, God, I'm sorry. And when you sin before God, it's far better for you to confess your sin and say, God, I did that and I hate it and I'm sorry. Would you please forgive me then to make an excuse? Stop with the excuses. It'll be better for you. Well, beginning in verse 14, we see God's responding as His justice demands. He pronounces a curse upon the serpent and upon this world. He says to the serpent there in verse 14, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. It's no accident that snakes today are the most despised of animals. I believe the number of people scared of snakes and hateful to snakes are more than any other animal. I don't have scientific evidence for that, but I just believe so. It's no accident that snakes slither along the ground today. It's all because of what Satan did in the garden. It's no accident that spiritual warfare takes place in this world between Satan and God's people. It's no accident today that Satan is about trying to deceive and to make deception in the world. It's no accident that many in this world fight against Satan and his powers. It's God's curse upon the serpent. It's God's curse upon Satan. When God turned to the woman, He said in verse 16, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth your children. Yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Mothers, have you felt the curse? you felt the curse? Nine months after conception, the pain gets to be unbearable. That's the curse of God in our lives. Wives, have you felt the curse? Desiring to rule over your husband, only to see your husband rule over you. That's the curse. Desiring there, the desire to master and to be head over that. That's the curse. Marriages face power struggles because of what took place in the garden. They do. Turning to the man, God said, Verse 17, Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it will grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Men, have you felt the curse? Have you ever tried to grow a garden? You've certainly experienced the curse as the weeds grow up. I believe also if you have labored to the point of just total fatigue and exhaustion to provide for your families, Adam had to do here with the thorns and the thistles of the ground to provide the bread for your food. That's the curse. Work isn't bad. But God has cursed us so that we need to work hard and labor hard and long. It's a curse. When you die, you'll experience the curse. You know that? 
Maybe the most tragic thing about the curse is that it kept us from eternal life. Look at verse 22. When he's about to push them out of the garden, God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us. Again, the triunity, the trinity, right? In that, he knows good and evil. And now, he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. Adam and Eve died in their sin and never were they able to grab from the tree of life to get their eternal life. It just didn't happen. Notice the results of the curse. These, these results not just psychological dispositions in our hearts. They are physical changes made to our physical world. The appearance of an animal was physically changed. Every time you look on a snake, you should say, The curse! That his belly's got to be touching the ground. We experience pain and sweat and toil and hardship because of sin. And you need to realize how powerful a thing sin actually is. Pain and anguish are always the result of sin. And we need to look at the end. And should we understand the pain and hardship that sin will bring, perhaps our hearts will be more attuned to, the, to God and to the path of righteousness and choose that instead. Because sin always brings pain. And the world in which we're living today is a changed world from the one that God created. The world at the end of Genesis 3 is far different than the world at the end of Genesis chapter 2. But you know what? It's the world in which we live and we cannot escape the consequences of sin. But you know what? There's hope. Habakkuk prayed, In wrath, O Lord, remember mercy. And that's indeed what God did here. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, I'm calling it the hope. Hope is found right here. I, I touched upon it a little bit last week, but I do so again this morning. God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, <clears throat> between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. This verse has often been called by theologians the Proto-Euangelion, which means Proto-First Euangelion Gospel. The first gospel is the first hope. Even in the curse, God is providing a shimmer, a glimmer of hope. Though it's veiled in many ways, it is a hope. Though there's enmity between Satan and the woman, there would come a day when a seed from the woman would arise and defeat Satan and ultimately be victorious. That's the message here. Satan, you're going to lose. The seed that would come is pictures being bruised on the heel. The seed is pictured also as bruising Satan on the head. We take this to mean the seed would receive a flesh wound, but Satan would receive a mortal wound. And it's the story of the Bible works itself out, we can see clearly that this took place on the cross of Calvary when Satan so worked to put Jesus on the cross and wound Him in the flesh. But you know what? Satan never defeated Jesus. When Jesus rose from the dead, He showed that it was only a flesh wound. It wasn't a mortal wound. He defeated Satan by conquering death, the ultimate weapon that Satan can use. And thus, thereby, He crushed Satan's head. In Hebrews 2.14, we read that Jesus rendered powerless Him who had power of the death, that is, the devil. It's through, the, it's through death, burial, and resurrection of Christ that the sting of death is no longer upon us. Right? It's through faith in Christ that we have the victory. Now, for those of you who have read through your Bible this past year with us, you know how it ends. Right? Turn with me to the last page of your Bible in Revelation chapter 22. It's kind of bookends, if you will. These themes coming up again. It ends with those who have been redeemed, eating from the tree of life and living forever. This tree that was in the garden that Adam and Eve perhaps longed to get to and God said, no, get out. You can't live forever. Now we get to eat of it. Look here in verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes. The context of washing their robes in the blood of Christ so that they may have the right 
to the tree of life and may enter by the gates of the city. The tree which Adam and Eve longed to eat but were prohibited from doing, we get to eat from and live forever. We get to taste Eden someday. The Lord Jesus comes back and gives us that ability. Look at verse 18. It says, I testify to everyone who hears the prophecy of this book of Revelation, probably. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the prophecy of this book, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book, right? It says, you deny God's word, you add to God's word, he's going to take you away, right? But if you're faithful and true and go to the line and believe God's word, you get to take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. That's ultimately where the cross of Christ leads us, right? This is all picturing of a glorious, blessed life where we get to take of that fruit and be with Christ forever. And it comes. We die and know in the presence of God that tree, perhaps when Christ comes back. Look what it says in verse 20. He who testifies these things, yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Right? The longing is for Christ to come so we could take and eat of that fruit and live forever. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. You know, this ends on such a good note. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. You know, you think about God's redemptive plan in all the Bible. And you say, why is it that God put up with us? Why didn't He just kick Adam and Eve out? Why didn't He just destroy the world? Why did He save eight people in the ark of Noah? There's a clear answer why he saved it. He wanted to magnify his grace. Ephesians chapter 1 says that God predestined us, he chose us, he called us to the praise of the glory of his grace. The whole redemption story of man, of how we're redeemed through Jesus Christ, is ultimately to give great praise and honor and glory to God for his marvelous grace. And for ages and eternity, we will be objects of mercy to proclaim to everybody, look at how merciful a God we have. Well, that's the story of the Bible. We've seen the bookends next week. We'll look at Genesis 1 through 25, which is the end of the whole story of Abraham. Is we're going to focus. I encourage you to read that story this week and come with your hearts ready and attuned to think about the Abrahamic covenant. Let's pray today. Oh Lord, I thank you for your plan of redemption that didn't give up on fallen humanity. but pursued us. And you sought us. When we didn't seek you, you sought us. When we didn't choose you, you chose us. You dragged us into your kingdom. You showed us the marvelous light. You opened our blind eyes to see the glories of the gospel of Christ. God, you have done it all. It's all to the praise of your grace. And I would pray, as we go through the Bible this year, I pray that this resounding message of the the grace of God would abound in our hearts and our minds that we would forever love the grace of God. God, for you rule all things but to the praise and the glory of your grace. God, that you have accomplished our redemption for us through Christ. May we continue to marvel at his wondrous works that he has done. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.